Well, on this my last weekend with you, it is appropriate that I return to a theme that has been very close to my own heart and mark my ministry. If you were asked the question by someone, what was Pastor Ogden's ministry all about? I would hope you would be able to say something like, Pastor Ogden simply wanted us to be followers or disciples of Jesus. That would be my hope that you would say. And I think that's the journey that we have been on uh, over the last number of years that I've been a part of this staff team and a part of the core leadership of the church. We've simply been asking ourselves one question. How can we faithfully fulfill the mission that Jesus gave to his church? And what was that mission? Well, we call it the Great Commission. Uh, When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, that's what we need to be laser focused on, and I think that's what we've been been attempting to do. And certainly at the heart of that being make disciples is the great commandment. That's what we've been reflecting on for the last number of weeks, at least the first half of that under the banner of the way of love. And uh, just to give you a quick review on that first Sunday of February, we looked at the heart. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? And we talked about a broken and contrite heart. And then we move to the soul. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your soul? And that's where we looked at the soul as our unique personhood that we offer up to God. And then last week we looked at what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your mind? And we said that the loving God of our minds is to see the love of God in all the variable circumstances of life. That that is the one constant uh, that we have. And so this morning... We're going to look at the attitude in which we are to approach our discipleship through the frame of loving the Lord our God with all of our strength. And I think when Jesus says to love the Lord our God with all our strength, he's moving us into the realm of our physical or bodily existence. The word that Jesus uses here out of the Greek language, and that's what the New Testament was written in, uh, for strength is the word iskuos. It means capacity or ability or power. Love the Lord your God with all your capacity. Love the Lord your God with all your ability. Love the Lord your God with all your power. We love God by harnessing our bodily energy with passion to serve God and our neighbor. When we move to the Apostle Paul's understanding of the Christian faith, uh, I think there's really one word that I would say summarizes Paul's approach to living out our faith in Christ. And it's this word. The word discipline. Paul piles up images of athletes in training, soldiers under command, hardworking farmers. He loves words like training, self-control, sober, working, labor, focused energy to describe the life in Christ. And I think if the Apostle Paul were to open a school, it would be a Christian fitness center. And what would be required to have membership in this Christian fitness center? What ethos would you have to to take on? Well, again, Paul comes right back to athletic images when he says that we are to approach the Christian life as athletes in training. And when he writes to the Corinthians, uh, this is exactly what he uses. The backdrop against the text that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning uh, is what is called the Isthmian Games, second only to the games in Athens. In order to be able to compete in the Isthmian Games... Uh, you had to demonstrate that you entered into 10 months of training prior to this event. And I think this is kind of what Paul had in mind when he said this in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, 
but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into what? Strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. So I would submit that the Christian life needs to be approached in the same way that an athlete competes and trains to compete. Words like practice, discipline, repetition, routine, mark what the Christian life is all about. Arguably, we uh, have lived in the city that has produced the greatest basketball player that's ever lived, Michael Jordan, right? And uh, Michael Jordan was known for pulling it out at the end of the games. He would just uncannily hit that final shot. Was it all because he was just lucky? Or was he not only combining talent with perspiration? People marked the fact that Michael Jordan spent hours practicing in the gym to hit that final shot, to practice those free throws, to hit them just at the right time. But Paul has here a, uh, a how much more argument. He's saying, how much more should we who are trying to find a, an accolades uh, before the throne of God uh, forever and work harder than the athlete who is just going to have something that, that passes away in a moment of time? For example, uh, anybody remember who won the World Series this last year? Think quickly. Who was it? We know who didn't win the World Series, don't we? (laughs) Well, Paul goes on to say here, how much more should we be putting out the effort to conform our lives to Christ? And Paul puts himself forth as exhibit A to this one who was passionate about following God's design for his life. Paul had his own mission statement where he described, very similar to the mission statement that Jesus gave the church, what he was all about. And he records his mission statement in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. In verse 28, he gives us his mission statement. In verse 29, he gives us the passion which he pursued that mission statement. And so we read, We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing everyone with all wisdom, so that they may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he gives his passion. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which he so powerfully works in me. Now, notice Paul's string of words here. He labors. He works hard. He exerts himself to fulfill this call. He says he struggles against the lethargy and laziness that could hold him back. And then he talks about energy. And he uses the word energy two times here in the Greek language. It doesn't quite show up. He says, with all his energy, which he so powerfully energizes in me. (laughs) He compiles up these terms. So this is the passion in which he pursues his call and what he calls us to as well. Dallas Willard has summarized it this way. He says, grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. (laughs) We can't earn our salvation, but boy, once that salvation comes, it better reintroduce itself into a passion and energy and effort uh, to fulfill that call. John Stott has, I think, wonderfully summed up Paul's intent here with this statement about the Christian life. He says, you can become a Christian in a moment, but not a mature Christian. Christ can enter, cleanse, and forgive you in a matter of seconds, but it will take much longer for your character to be transformed and molded to his will. It takes only a few minutes for a bride and groom to be married, but in the rough and tumble of their home, it will take many years for two strong wills to be dovetailed into one. Can I get an amen to that? 
So when we receive Christ, a moment of commitment will lead to a lifetime of adjustment. So we are to adopt here the, the same attitude of becoming like Christ as an athlete does in preparation for training and competition, a musician mastering an instrument, a soldier preparing for battle. Becoming like Christ is our vocation. It is our calling. That's what we are about in this life. Everything else is secondary to that. Paul talks about the process of this transformation or growth uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. And he talks about it under the the banner of this lifetime of a makeover, this makeover image uh, that he introduces here. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 and 24, we read, Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, he's saying, take off these old, tattered, soiled garments of that former way of life and put on a new wardrobe that's representative of true light, righteousness, and holiness that is befitting us. Put off, put on, put off, put on. That's a regular process of this makeover. Now, we've all probably seen the the makeover shows, have we not? Where we uh, see somebody coming on stage complaining about their spouse and how slovenly they look at home, and then uh, we want this makeover to occur. Uh, Can you imagine that? What a transformation, huh? And so the, uh, the person comes on stage looking as bad as they possibly can, like the person on the left, and uh, then they go off stage, get a whole new wardrobe, get cleaned up, come on stage, and people do what? They ooh and ah for what has taken place. One of my favorite stories is about uh, the Amish boy and his father who find themselves in a shopping mall for the first time. And this is an all-new territory for them to be in, and they walk up to this place where these shiny walls move back and forth uh, from each other. And uh, the boy says to his father, what's that? And the father, never seen an, ele- seen an elevator before, said, had no idea. But as they were standing there, a woman in a wheelchair wheels up to the shiny doors. They open up, and the woman slides into that little room, and the doors close behind her. And up goes the numbers as they look, and then down comes the numbers, and the do- shiny doors open up and a beautiful blonde steps out. And the father turns to the son and says, go get your mother. (laughs) Now that's a makeover, okay? Put off, uh, put on. Take off that former way of life and put on the life that God intends us to live. In a moment, we're gonna talk about what's entailed in that with the kind of commitment that it required. But first of all, let's look at the attitude of transformation uh, that is necessary. So what's that attitudinal manner in which we should approach this makeover, this transformation into Christ-likeness? I'm indebted to John Ortberg, as I am on many ideas, uh, for a distinction that he makes in his wonderful book, The Life You've Always Wanted. He says that most of us are trying to live the Christian life rather than training to live the Christian life. We're trying to live the Christian life rather than training to live the Christian life. And there's a big difference between trying and training. Now, what's that difference? Well, a trying mentality is simply kind of dabbling at something. You can take a shot at it. It's kind of a short-term effort. You come at it from the mindset of, well, let's, let's see what this is all about, as if we're kind of collecting experiences but not pursued in depth. Trying is a life of flitting from one thing to another but not landing anywhere. And we know there's many areas of life where a trying mentality will just not cut it, Right? 
No one would wake up on a Saturday morning, open the sports section, see that there's a marathon being run today, check their watch and say, oh, I've got some time today. I think I'll run the marathon, right? You can't move yourself across 26 miles without preparation and training. Why did we announce in January the October marathon for World Vision? (laughs) Because it's going to take that long to prepare for it. So you don't simply try to run a marathon or try to play the piano or try to be a doctor. (laughs) You have to train. And all of us know this, whether it's Sometime in our life, we said, if we're going to pursue a profession that we want to enter into, pursue a work, we know there's training involved. We've got to commit ourselves to the discipline of making that happen. This is the subject of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, the Story of Success. He raises in this book the question of, is talent simply enough to get us where we want to go? Or is there more to it than that? In fact, he uses a formula that says, no, it's talent plus preparation or perspiration that equals achievement. There's a lot of talented people that are not successful because they have not put the energy and effort into it. And he talks in this book about what he calls the 10,000-hour rule. And that is that's the hours necessary to really master a particular subject area or skill in life. This has been documented in many different areas, but one of the studies that they had in the book was about the Berlin Elite School of Music. And they studied the students, the violinists uh, in this school of music, and they divided the students into three categories. The first category were were the stars. These are the ones that are going to be the concert violinists. And then the second category was the merely good, and the third category was those who were going to end up teaching music in a public school. And they simply ask all these students one question. Because all of them had started studying their instrument about at the age of five. And simply the question was, how many hours have you practiced since you picked up the instrument? And they were all about 20 years old at this point. And uh, those who were to to be public school teachers uh, had practiced about 4,000 hours. Those who are the merely good had put in about 8,000 hours. Those who had the ability to become concert violinists had put in 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours is the length of time it seems to take the brain to master a subject and integrate it into one's being. Practice is what we're talking about. You've all heard the name Pablo Casals, the world-renowned cellist, uh, who well into his 80s, was continuing to practice at five hours a day. And he was asked, well, why do you continue to practice? You're the best in the world. His response, I love it. He said, I think I'm getting better. (laughs) Well, if it takes Pablo Casals (laughs) that amount of time, uh, how about us? To master a skill requires practice. To master the character of Christ in our life, how much more difficult is that? This is the way John Orberg puts it. Spiritual transformation is not a matter of trying harder, but training wisely. The need for preparation or training does not stop when it comes to learning the art of forgiveness or joy or courage. In other words, it applies to a healthy and vibrant spiritual life just as it does to a physical and intellectual activity. Learning to think, feel, and act like Jesus is at least as demanding as learning to run a marathon or play the piano. I would say it's more demanding. Uh, than that. So let me ask you, honestly, how would you characterize your approach to the Christian life? You dabbling? 
Have you entered into a process of training yourself to be a Christian? You see, many of us, I think, look at the Christian life simply as a benefits plan. We've reduced the Christian life, as Ortberg says, to the minimum entrance requirements necessary to get into the kingdom when we die. We've said, well, I've, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Uh, I've acknowledged my need for forgiveness. I recognize that Christ has paid the debt of my sin and that the credit has, from him has transferred to my account, and, and therefore I am, I'm in. I've got my sins forgiven. This is what Dallas Willard calls barcode Christianity. We simply want to get rung up by the great scanner in the sky. But if that's our view of the Christian life, where's the depth of commitment necessary to follow it out and be transformed into Christ's likeness? If it's simply about the benefits plan, then there's nothing inherent in that to cause us to want to change. We've got what we want. But that's not what the Christian life is all about. Paul says we have been bought with a price. Our life is not our own. That we are about the process of growing into to Christ-likeness. Paul says that uh, a training mentality is to enter into a daily rhythm of putting off the old nature which belongs to the former manner of life and putting on a new nature created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the practice of growth. Now I want you to, to notice something when we look at a slide here on the screen. I want you to notice the, the words that are capitalized and ask the question, what do those words have in common with each other? What do they all point to? Paul says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You did not come to know Christ in that way. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. And in Romans 12, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So we have live that way, way of life, pattern. What do all those words point to? I think Paul is talking here about habits, developing habits that are consistent with what God wants us to be. We are to put off the old habits, the former way of life, and put on a new habit. And so let's explore this whole issue of of changing our habits as central to being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. First thing we need to acknowledge is that we are habitual creatures. We are creatures of habit. So what's a habit? How would you define it? All these things that we do unconsciously, right? That we have learned to do without even thinking about them. We're not aware of them, whether it's habits of thinking, feeling, or acting, we just do them and when we go on autopilot. It's a very wonderful thing that God has given us to do. If we had to think about everything we did, it would be very difficult. When I think about learning habits and how that happens, I think about learning to drive a car. Um, I remember when I was a teenager, maybe some of you can remember back that far, even I can remember back that far, and uh, I remember sitting in the car for the first time and being told all these things I had to remember when I was driving. Get that key of the ignition, the seat belt in place, make sure that the seat is right where it's supposed to be, check the mirrors to make sure that they are at the right angle, keep your eye on the speedometer, make sure you're aware of the traffic behind and inside of you. All these things, I thought, I'll never remember them. Now, my father had the unenviable task of teaching me to drive. I learned on a stick shift. I set his life back by a number of years, I'm sure. He might even still be with us now if, uh, if I had not had to learn. And uh, learning on a stick shift meant that I had to learn to start the car going up a hill at a 
standing start. So that meant uh, putting just enough gas down and letting the clutch up just enough. We've all had that experience, right? Without sending the car through the intersection like a bunking Bronco, which I did on many an occasion, lurching and lunging uh, in that process. I've had too many things to learn. Well, we all know that we can now drive without even think about what we're doing, right? I can compose sermons while I'm driving, get from point A to B, and actually even stop at the right places without thinking about what I'm doing because we learn habits. And so Paul is talking here about taking off those God-displeasing ways of thinking, feeling, and acting, that former way of life, and putting in its place that new self created in true righteousness and holiness to change our habit patterns, to get down to that. Second thing he says here is don't underestimate the grip of old habits. The reason we need to have a commitment to growth like one in training is because habits are difficult to change. They're difficult to dislodge in our life because they become a part of our bodily systems, our automatic response system. They lodge in our being. They become a part of who we are. Sometimes we're not even conscious of these things that are habits that we need to change. And so we need to bring those to the surface. Paul says to the Ephesians, no longer live as the Gentiles do. And my immediate response is, what they could have responded back by saying, but that's all we've learned. We've learned to live in this certain way. You want us to change our habits, our, our way of living. We get raised in a, a culture that is media-driven, don't we? And day in and day out, whether it's TV, internet, radio, etc., we hear one message. You are what you have. Acquire. You'll be measured by that. And that can become a part of who we are. We need to then start changing that in a very conscious way. For those of us who are athletes of any stripe, maybe weekend golfers, uh, you know how difficult it is to change a bad habit of something you physically have trained yourself to do. I remember the first time I, I heard the concept of muscle memory. It was a revelation to me. Oh, our muscles actually have memories. We learn to te- a certain way, and we do something over and over again. So if you've got that slice on your, on your golf swing, uh, it's just we're doing the same thing over and over again. You go to a trainer. Somebody observes what you're doing. They teach you a new way of doing things. How awkward is it to learn a new habit, a new swing, a new way of life, a new thought pattern? It initially feels very awkward because these things seep themselves deep inside of us. They get their roots in us, and it's, it's difficult to change. Ever had the opportunity to take out a tree stump? Spring is coming. You've got that ugly tree stump in your backyard. It's a Saturday afternoon. It's kind of a nice day. Two o'clock in the afternoon. I, I, I got 30 minutes. I think I'll get rid of that tree stump. Three hours later, what's happened? You've uncovered this nest of roots. <laughs> well, that's kind of an image uh, for us. These tangled roots that have worked their way inside of our being. That's why a trying paradigm will never cut it when it means comes to live the Christian life. You have to enter into a mentality of training yourself to be a Christian. And that leads me to my, my final point this morning. That is, practice the principle of replacement. By laying out the framework of putting off and putting on, uh, Paul is, I think, giving us a very practical principle here. 
He's saying you can't simply stop doing something and change a habit without putting something else that's God-honoring in its place. Why do diets fail? Because we're going to eat less and starve ourselves with fewer calories, and then those hunger pangs come back with a vengeance, right? Because we have not put a new eating habit into place. Or you think of, I'm going to stop watching as much television as I have, or be less critical than I was, or get off those internet sites that are polluting my mind. But then we're drawn right back to those places. Why? Because we haven't put something else in its place. So this principle of replacement is so central to transformation uh, that, is, that is necessary. Jesus talked about the man who had a demon cast out of his life, you might recall, And this demon went to and fro looking for a place to lodge. And then he found that that person had not put something else in its place and brought seven other demons back to reoccupy that same person. Plants practice the principle of replacement. Just as an illustration here, uh, Paul goes on and shows in verses 25 through 32 five different points of putting off and putting on. Put off falsehood, put on truth. Don't let... The sun go down on your anger. Don't let it simmer. Deal with it quickly. Those who have been stealing, do honest work. Those who have unwholesome talk come out of their mouth, speak what builds up. Instead of bitterness and rage and anger, put in its place compassion and kindness. Five different times Paul says, here's an illustration of what I'm talking about uh, in this point passage. But how do we get in touch with the habits that need to be changed in our life? This is where the elements of a training regimen come in uh, that we call our spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. We learn to listen to what God is saying and be attuned to our own lives through these practices. Here are some of the spiritual practices that you can consider. Place your life up next to the truth of Scripture. Why do we do that? Because the Scripture becomes a mirror to us so that we reveals ourselves to ourselves. Develop the discipline of solitude and silence in order to listen deeply have to get quiet enough in order to hear what God has to say to us. Intertwine your life with trusted Christian friends who will help you to live in truth. Uh, this is why we call partners for the journey here at Christ Church. These are people who will give us feedback, both positively and honestly, about those places that we need some change in our life. And then finally, take faith risks by putting ourselves in uncomfortable places, uh, like going on mission trips and uh, getting out beyond our ski tips where it's going to be difficult to to operate, but God shows up in those places, whether that's local service or international service, places where we go beyond ourselves. So uh, what's in your training regimen? What makes up the spiritual practices that you put together to work out your faith and be transformed in the image of Christ? Could you list them? Could you go back home this morning and say, here's what I have in my training regimen and here's what I need to add uh, to my training regimen. Again, John Ortberg puts it like this. Following Jesus simply means learning from him to arrange my life around activities that enable me to live in the fruit of the spirit. Spiritual disciplines are to life what practice is to a game. I like this image that... uh, C.S. Lewis uses, you know, I have to have one final C.S. Lewis story here this morning. 
He says, imagine your life is a living house and God has come in to take up residence, to rebuild it. At first, he's doing the little stuff, you know, unstopping the drains and fixing the leaks in the roof. You're not surprised. You know those are things that need to be done. But then he starts knocking the house, your life about in a way that starts to hurt. And you wonder what God's up to. And the answer is he's building a far different house out of you than you thought. He's throwing up a new wing here and an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to just be a little decent cottage. He's building a palace because he intends to live there. He's living in the palace of your life. Loving God with all of our strength requires a training mentality, which is truly far more challenging than running a marathon or mastering a musical instrument. We are to constantly be in the process of becoming uh, reflectors of Christ's life in us. You will never do anything more demanding or require more discipline than being a follower of Jesus. But you will also never do anything more rewarding and satisfying than that. It is no accident that the word disciple and discipline have the same root. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you call not only the best out of us, but you call us to the best. You call us to desire to be all that you intend us to be. You say, I make a total demand on your life. You don't apologize for that because you want the best for us. You want us to live passionate lives. They go after what you've designed us to be, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, Lord, may we have a meeting with you. May we have that time with you where we rededicate our focus to say, Lord, I want to be all that you intend me to be. Meet me deeply at that core place of my life. Through Christ, amen.